Our children um, have a, a particular way of eating their meals. When they were smaller, they used to spot the tastiest morsel on the plate, gulp that down, and then realise that they were faced with a sort of sea of cabbage and potato or some other nameless offering that I'd triumphantly brought home from my allotment that they then had to uh, uh, plough through. So they got a little bit wiser after a while. Um, They realised they were going to have to eat it all. So they developed a second plan, which uh, by and large is their current strategy. And that is that they um, uh, spot the tastiest morsel on the plate and they put that aside as a sort of incentive and a pleasure at the end. And then they plough through the bits that they don't like. And we tell them repeatedly, surely you'll get a more pleasurable experience if you mix it up a little bit. If you um, um, make sure that that cabbage has a bit of uh, gravy and chicken with it as it goes into your mouth. But uh, no, they are not easily persuaded. I thought of that as I looked at Luke's Gospel. I think Luke would have some sympathy with my children. In the second half of uh, uh, Luke in particular, we have, as we have gone through Luke, been forced, in fact, to digest some pretty unpalatable truths. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan a couple of uh, weeks ago? Which was designed, actually, to expose our lovelessness. While we're asking um, clever questions about who our neighbour is, who we should love and who we shouldn't, um, people like this despised Samaritan are out there just doing it. And we were meant to feel ashamed. Or um, the parables in Luke chapter 14 that we saw last week uh, were even more ruthless with us in many, in many senses. Jesus exposed our foolish pride trying to jostle to the top place on the table. He exposed our haughty disdain for other people. Actually, the only people that we give anything to is people that we think we will get things back from, says Jesus. And uh, even more acute was his dark warning that, uh, uh, with the parable of the great banquet that there are people there, uh, well, people amongst him, who perhaps were speaking incredibly confidently about going to heaven. And yet, because they were too much bound up with this world and because they quietly actually disdained God, they were heading to, in the end, refusing the invitation altogether. It was tough stuff. Difficult stuff. If our hearts were not wounded by it a bit, and we haven't really been reading those passages. Luke has been making us eat our greens. On the way, he has added a few sweeter encouragements with those parables. Those of us who were completely daunted and flawed by the, uh, Jesus' conclusion of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. We saw how Jesus then, or Luke in particular, then gives us the encouragement of, of putting the story of Martha and Mary in uh, just after that parable, where she is told, she, there's only one thing that is necessary. 
to listen attentively to Jesus. Attentive listening to Jesus will actually uh, um, uh, help us to live the way that we are called to live. Or um, uh, particularly Theophilus, the uh, um, first reader of this Gospel, must have been quietly very encouraged alongside the dark aspects of the parable of the great banquet that the master, in his anger, finally went out into the roads and the highways to compel the people to come in. Because Theophilus was a Roman citizen, he wasn't a Jew. And as everybody knows, in the first century, all roads led to Rome. To go out onto the highways was tantamount to saying, let people of other nationalities come into my kingdom. Theophilus could take some encouragement from that. But it is in Luke chapter 15 here that we begin to get to the choicer items reserved at the side of the plate for this moment. We must be clear that actually this is still in the context of real opposition to Jesus. Look at verse 2 of chapter 15, for instance. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Um, And Jesus, as he tells these three parables, is precisely addressing them as well as the sinners and uh, so on who are alongside him. At the end of his third parable, there is a clear criticism of of, of, of the Pharisees and teachers of the law that we will have to look at. But altogether, this chapter is much gentler. It is gentler with them, actually. And it predominates is dominated by by a real sense of the love of God. God's delight in his children. We're not so so much here meant to be absolutely cut to the quick. We are meant to have our blood run a little faster. Our taste buds get tingled uh, 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 just a little bit more as we see this other aspect of the God of the Bible. If we were learning just a moment ago, a couple of weeks ago about what makes God angry, today we're going to learn about what makes God happy. These um, religious people are actually shocked by the uh, way in which obviously lost people come to Jesus. So Jesus tells these three stories to help us to see why it's actually perfectly obvious why tax collectors and sinners flock to him. First story is the story is the story about the joy of a shepherd. Verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does he not leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Jesus emphasises in this story the determination of this shepherd to find this sheep. He is determined 
to, to uh, walk the hillside until he finds it, he said. He is determined to get this sheep home. He puts it on his shoulders. Anyone who's tried to drive a sheep on its own in front of them will know why this, sheep puts, uh, uh, why this shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders. In, in this country, you can't lift a sheep, uh, a British sheep, to, d- to do that. But um, Middle Eastern sheep have the, av- the um, advantage that they're portable. And so, uh, as you can with a lamb uh, in this country, you could with a sheep there, you take it and you put it on your shoulder. There is no way it's going to get away again. There is no way I am going to fail in my purpose to get this sheep home, says the shepherd. But it's the joy of this shepherd as he comes home that Jesus particularly wants to emphasise. He joyfully carries the sheep. He joyfully gathers his friends and neighbours when he gets home. And he calls them to rejoice with him. And this is what he really wants us to understand. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is what the true God is like, says Jesus. If you're not a Christian yet here this morning, if Jesus considers you to be one of his lost sheep, then right now he is out there looking for you and he is not going to give up. He is going to go after you, his lost sheep, until he finds you. And maybe that is today. I don't know what it is that brought you to church this morning. But maybe, frankly, it was because God is chasing you down. You know, on an open hillside, it's not very easy to catch a stray sheep and uh, young shepherds in the Middle East and uh, actually my dad when he was a younger uh, man who uh, kept sheep on uh, open hillsides um, uh, find that there's only one way to do it. You just keep running after it. And they will give up. Actually wise sheep you'll see this sort of look of resignation come on their face and they give up quickly if they know the shepherd. That's what God is like. He just keeps on after those whom he has claimed as his sheep and he will not stop. And then when he, when he meets us, when he catches up with us, he takes us on his shoulders and he brings us home. And in heaven, he calls those millions upon millions of angels that there are there. And they begin praising him and rejoicing. You've come home. You're safe. This is where you were meant to be. 
the flock is now. One more added to its number. The rejoicing is deafening. And if you are a Christian here this morning, as Dave said, well that once in a decisive way happened to you and there was rejoicing on that great day. But we have to be honest and uh, we recognise that um, in a certain way we are just like those sheep still that tend to wander off, don't we? A nice little bit of grass there and nibble at that and a bit of grass beyond and a bit and before long we are out of sight and are miles away from God. More than that, sometimes that gets hardened into separation from God's people as well, where where we lack the encouragement, the challenge, the rebuke sometimes, the support. We find ourselves out on a hillside with wolves. And God is after us too. On the farm where I grew up, we, we had a sheepdog who had a rather relaxed attitude towards her role. I think I've told some people about this before. She, you'd, you'd, um, you'd send her off to round up the sheep in a, in, a, in a field and she'd come back with about 90% or so and think that you were satisfied. And of course it was worse than useless because then... Uh, I would have to tramp off round the, the field, picking up the few other sheep that there were, probably tangled up in the hedge or, or whatever. If any shepherd knows, they've all got to be home. God is not satisfied with any of his sheep wandering away, whether they were saved 40, 50 years ago or whether they were saved yesterday. He wants us near him. Because that is, that, that is the place where he and they can begin to rejoice together. The joy of a shepherd. Then, uh, uh, to reinforce his point, his, he talks about the joy of a housewife. Verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Like, uh, like the shepherd, you see, this woman is determined to find this lost coin. She lights a lamp to illuminate the gloomy, gloomy quarters of the house. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully, literally she searches thoughtfully until she finds it. Wonderful picture. Second picture you see of God searching for the lost. God who shines his light into the darkest recesses of this world because his determination is that the light of the gospel should go to every corner of the world from Romania to Rose Hill, from from Blantyre to Blackbird Lees, from Mongolia to Magdalen Road, from Oxford University to Oxford Homeless Shelter, God wants the light of his gospel to be shining there so that it will show up the glint of those whom he has decided this one is mine 
I am not going to let him or her stay in the gloom in the corner. He or she is mine. I want him or her with me. And once again, that housewife, you see, rejoices with her friends when the light has picked up the coin, when the broom has brought it out, when careful thought has worked out where it is. Has that happened to you? If it has, there is rejoicing in heaven. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, says Jesus. This is what God is about then, says Jesus. This is what makes God really happy. This is what drives his heart, is seeing lost people saved, lost sheep rescued, lost Coins found. And then he tells this famous and longer story, not only of the joy of the housewife and the shepherd, but now the joy of a father. And he expands the themes that he has already uh, um, uh, hinted at to let us feel more richly what he is talking about. He emphasises, for instance, first of all, the waywardness of the son in this story. There was a man, verse 11, who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. This young man doesn't wait, isn't prepared to wait for his father to die and so get his inheritance. He wants to enjoy his wealth now. This young man is not interested in carefully stewarding the wealth that he has for a long and happy life. No, he wants to just be uh, um, uh, as happy as he can now and he squanders it in wild living, living. But this young man's decisions have left him terribly vulnerable to disaster. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. It is a cruel story. Uh, particularly cruel to Jewish ears. To Jewish ears, to, to care for pigs was bad enough. But Jesus says he envied the pigs. And actually, this is a frighteningly contemporary picture, isn't it? We too, as a, as a culture, are obsessed with just enjoying uh, life now, and often in similarly self-destructive ways. Binge drinking continues to grow amongst uh, young people. Alcoholism does in the, in the older generation. The rate of sexually transmitted infections continues to uh, 
uh, rise. This week the Tories have pointed out uh, that uh, an increasing number of people have actually descended into severe poverty over the last uh, number of years, sometimes through their own foolishness, sometimes through the recklessness of other people uh, and the irresponsibility of others, but generally there is a picture of people uh, living much more wildly today and reaping much nastier consequences. And if that's not played out in classic, obvious ways in our own lives, it's played out quietly in the way that we actually bring destruction on our soul. We wander away from God our Father thinking we'll have a good time, thinking that he's a little bit repressive and we need to be free, thinking that it's all very well that inheritance finally in eternity but I want a bit of the, bit of the action now. And we find there is a bleakness and a poverty and a destitution that comes into our spiritual life. that really is miserable. He even envied the pigs. But this story is not primarily about the waywardness of this son. It is much more about the love of this father because the son finally comes to his senses. Verse 17, He came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is an extraordinary picture. The father, first of all, says, uh, says Jesus, saw him on the horizon while he was still a long way off. We can imagine that father turning his eyes to that horizon a hundred times a day. That is where my son disappeared from my sight and I'm longing to see him reappear. And when that father sees him, He doesn't sit still, he doesn't wait for an apology, he doesn't tut tut, he actually runs to him. You know, respectable uh, people, men anyway, in Middle Eastern society, didn't run, that was completely undignified, that was below them. They walked in a stately way. Not this father, he runs. Who cares what people think of me, he says. That's my son over there. I'm going to meet him. And when he gets to him, he throws his arms around him. He kisses him. You know, I always remember um, uh, doing this story in a, in a Sunday school class when I was a student. We did a little drama. I dressed um, a, a small boy in um, uh, sort of ragged clothes and wellies to make him into um, uh, the younger son and off he went and... Um, uh, did his thing and so on and ca- ca- came back and I gave him um, 
a bit of paper to read because this, this little speech that the young man seems to have uh, prepared seems very formal. So I got him to read it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. But as he started to read that uh, story, I actually um, uh, ran across the room and grabbed him and sort of hugged him so that he could hardly breathe. He was completely shocked, this poor little boy. (laughs) And the, the thing I remember is his wellies flying across the room. But I think people got the idea. I think the children saw what the story was about. This is a father who's not interested in the, in the prepared story. It is cut off before he gets to the end of it in verse 21. He's just interested in his son. He's just interested in caring for him and loving him and hugging him and kissing him. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The son gets a fine cloak. His fortunes are restored. The son receives receives a a ring on his finger, probably a ring with the family seal on it. His status is restored as a son. And the son receives sandals for those bare feet. His dignity is restored. Everything is restored to him. And they feast because he has come home. Let me say to you this morning, if you are a Christian this morning, that is how God responded to you when you turned to him. Now, he needed to see your penitence. He needed to see that uh, uh, you had now seen what a foolish life you were living. He needed to see that, but he didn't need speeches. just needed you coming home and he loved you and he rejoiced in you and he gave you an inheritance which is beyond any inheritance this world could ever have and he gave you a status which is beyond any status this world could ever have you are a child of God and he gave you a dignity that this world could never ever give you you will be in heaven with his son, Jesus, alongside him as an adopted son. That is how God responded when you came to him. And if there is anyone here who hasn't yet come to that God, If anyone here is hesitating, perhaps because you know the weight of the things you have done wrong. Perhaps because you think that um, you'll get better fun by uh, investing just a few more years in this world. 
If anything is holding you back, then look at this story. Absorb the truth of this story. And come to this God. When you do, there is rejoicing in heaven. There is, though, a last bit of the story that I said we would have to look at. Begins in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fatted calf for him. The older brother, actually, when we look at it, has a very low view of his life with his father. He says he has been slaving for his father. He doesn't call this wayward son his brother. He calls him this son of yours. And he's furious at the father's celebration. In, in many ways, he's potentially like many of us here. Many of us here who have served God faithfully. And perhaps, to be honest, we have, have um, felt sometimes that it was more like slavery, more like just a duty than a joy. And uh, perhaps some of us here, especially in a church like this where we have um, uh, so many people coming in, so, so, um, so many diffi- different types of people, some of them waifs and strays. Perhaps you felt a little bit resentful. Perhaps you wondered why you didn't get the attention that you feel that you ought to have. We need to take seriously the ominous dimension to this son's attitude, you see. In calling, in describing himself as a slave and in calling, uh, in saying to the father, this son of yours, not this brother of mine, he is coming close to describing himself as not a member of the family. He is coming close to by his own attitudes excluding himself from God's family. But the father in this parable is incredibly gentle with him. Particularly if we compare it, as we saw, with, the, with the, uh, some of the toughness of the previous parables. Verse 31, My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to be celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and it is alive. He was lost and is found. You are my son, he says. This is your brother, he says. You are part of this family. Can't you see that we had to rejoice when your foolish, wayward brother went AWOL and came back. And I haven't been treating you as a slave, he says. Everything that I have is yours. Oh yes, perhaps 
I do stop you going on off and having the wild sort of fun that your younger brother had for a moment with prostitutes and so on. But is that because I deny you pleasure? No. It's because there is nothing more deeply satisfying than enjoying the whole inheritance in a healthy way. Don't think of yourself as a slave. Think of yourself as the one who never lost his inheritance. That's so important for us here, isn't it? We live in a world increasingly broken, increasingly, if we are to have any impact on the world that we, uh, we are in, we will find ourselves actually um, awash with more and more real difficulties, real trials, real difficult people sometimes. And if we here, who are the stable believers, can't find it in our hearts to rejoice that such people come to hear the gospel, to find God their Father, well then we are in danger of effectively saying we do not belong to God. Because that's what he's all about. That's what he's doing. And there is an incredible privilege in standing alongside that father as he scans the horizon and seeing the sons and daughters who come over the horizon and running out with the father with delight and pleasure and adding our hug to the father's hug. This is what we are to be about if we are believers. This is to be what our life is about. This is the life of true joy. The joy of a shepherd who finds his sheep. The joy of a housewife who finds her coin. The joy of a father who finds his son. Come along, says the father to the older brother. Can't you join with me? Can't you feel what a pleasure it is to be in my shoes? Come along, Christian. Can't you embrace that? Because if you do, and you will discover the pleasure of living lives that imitate the Father's joy. Let's pray. Perhaps there are one or two here who are wondering, have I ever 
found that, Father. Perhaps you're thinking you'd like to come to him now. Pray with me. Perhaps there are others of us here who have been Christians for some time, but we know we need to re-engage with who God really is. Let's pray together.